But to begin this evening, it's Halloween, so we're going to start with a very gruesome bit of business, the dark trade of grave robbing. Back in the days when willing patients were scarce and surgery was mostly guesswork, there was a great demand for bodies to practice on. Some people weren't too fussy about where the bodies came from. Body snatching was a thriving business, but the competition was fierce. The trailer there for the 1972 film Burke and Hare. It's based on the true story of two Irish criminals who made a profit by killing people and selling their bodies to medical schools in 19th century Edinburgh. Theirs is a unique case in that they actually committed murder to maintain a steady supply of corpses. But uh, during the 18th and 19th century, the practice of body snatching, the secret stealing of dead bodies from their graves, was very common indeed. At the time, Dublin was the body snatching capital of Europe, as corpses were in constant demand by anatomy and surgical schools, where they they were essential for medical research and training. To talk about the macabre trade of the resurrectionist, I'm joined by historian uh, Michal Odivillin, founder of Kilmainham Tales. So what led to this explosion in grave robbing in the late 18th and early 19th uh, century, Michal? Um, explosion in population was one. Number two, increased interest and knowledge of anatomy anyway, and more and more need for trained surgeons, doctors, chemists, etc. All of these things led to it. Initially, you had obviously several, you had what, several graveyards around Dublin where the bodies were taken from. These were needed to go to anatomy schools where they would be used to train surgeons with. They could go to demonstration areas where surgeons would demonstrate for the public as much as for the surgeons themselves or the trainee surgeons, or indeed the the chemists, because they also had to learn anatomy too. So you had lots and lots of reasons why you needed bodies. The problem was you couldn't get bodies. You know, there are not too many of them around. And uh, you could only get them from criminals who were hanged. And in Dublin, that meant maybe 20, maybe 30 a year. But when you consider that some of the schools you had, like maybe 15 schools in Dublin, they had maybe 9, 10, maybe 15 pupils per school. So you're looking at a couple of hundred pupils who needed maybe up to three bodies a year per pupil. So that's a lot of bodies needed just in Dublin alone. So they had to get them somewhere. And were there gangs who were organised whose job it was or who saw it as their job to collect these bodies? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, they were, it was a very profitable business if you were in it and you were doing it well. There were, there were two types of gang. There was the amateur, which basically was the student. They would go out in gangs of you know, two, three or four of them, rob a body and bring it back. And then, they, of course, they would cut it up and have a look at it and study it. That was the amateur. But you had the professionals. They went out and they deliberately sought out bodies and they would sell them then to these, these uh, anatomy schools. They sold them for good profit. You know, I mean, in Dublin, you would get maybe six, seven pounds for a, a body in 1800. Now, that was, you know, that was could be a month's wages for one man. And bearing in mind that they could maybe get five or six of these in a night, uh, you know, there really was good money going there. And tell us about the, the tools of the grave robbers, because they're quite interesting. Not what you would expect, necessarily. Yeah, they're not what you expect. The first and most important one is a sack or a tarpaulin of some sort to put on the ground. And this is so that any earth you dig out, you can place it on that. It doesn't lie around when you replace it in the grave. 
Uh, in order to dig out the grave, he needed a shovel, but not an ordinary one. He needed a wooden one because it wouldn't make noise. If you hit a stone or whatever, it doesn't clang off it. That's it. Or when you hit the coffin, indeed, it doesn't clang off it. Uh, you needed a rope, obviously, and you needed hooks. These were to get the uh, coffin open. The hooks would be placed on the rope, and when he got down to it, uh, you could stick it under the lid and just yank it up. You didn't need the whole coffin up, just the top portion of it, uh, you know, the head as far as the shoulders. And bear in mind that most of the graves they were stealing from were poor people's graves, so the coffins would be poor and poor quality. And did you always cover your tracks? <laughs> well, they tried to. Um, I mean, they would they, they would refill the grave, but remember there was a couple of things. They could only take the body. They couldn't take the winding sheet or the shroud or anything else that the body was in. That was stealing. Mm. Uh, The body was not considered property. It belonged to the earth and to nobody else. Uh, So you could take that. So you had to put the shroud back. That would be the normal thing to do. And then you cover the grave back in. You put the earth back on it, put the body into the sack that you had with you and took it away. If you were seen by anybody, perhaps you could take the body out of the sack Drape it around your shoulders and you all staggered off like a few drunks down the road. But that, <laughs> but that would mean that, that there would be families who would be going to a grave who would have no idea that the body was no longer in the grave. Yes, that's quite true. And they may not find out for years. Most likely the time they'd find out would be if they buried another person in that grave. But many of these graves were very, very shallow and there wouldn't be another body going in on top. Uh, you know, Places like Bully's Acre, for example, which was a free graveyard. You didn't have to pay to be buried there. So that got crowded and packed with the poor of Dublin were burying there. All you had to do there was go up to uh, the pub beside the graveyard, uh, buy a pint, borrow the shovel and uh, head into the graveyard. And you only dug down as far as you needed to go Mm. in there. And were there any instances, celebrated instances perhaps, where people did discover that their relatives' remains had been stolen? Well, for me, the, 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 the most interesting one was around about 1840. There was a, a, a chap who, he was on his way into, into Marabone Lane Distillery, of all places, and he was stopped by a policeman who asked him to come down to the coroner's court to sit on a coroner's jury. He protested, but the coroner said, look, it'll only take a couple of minutes. The guy's been found drowned in the canal. There's not a mark on him, so it's just a quick look at the body, declare he's been found drowned, and that's it, and it's all over. But when he got down to the coroner's court and he saw the body, he discovered it was his father's body, which he had buried three days previously. He was horrified. He tried to convince the policeman of this. Uh, Eventually did, and that's when the whole thing was uncovered, that this was a plot with the coroner, who got paid per court he sat. And so he needed bodies to be brought in so that he could get more money. If, uh, on the other hand, the the body was damaged when it was in the canal, say it hit a barge or something, then he would need to have a doctor in to have a look at it to make sure that it wasn't murder. So the doctor got paid as well. And the the court case, of course, went on longer and he was paid by the length of the court. So it was a win-win situation for him. Total scam. Absolutely, total scam. Of course, somebody would also if um, take the clothes. I mean, the, the, this guy's father had been buried in his best clothes, but when he pulled out of the canal, he's in rags. So his good suit's gone somewhere mm. as well. And this was so lucrative, this trade, if you like, yes. was so lucrative that they were even exporting bodies from Dublin to Britain. Oh, Dublin was a, a big exporting centre. I mean, Britain isn't that far away, you know, journey-wise. 
So there were two places. Ideally, you get them over to Liverpool and get them from there quickly up to London if needed. Uh, you could get them up to Edinburgh as well, across from Belfast over to Edinburgh as well. A short run there too. And bodies were packed into various types of containers, usually some sort of barrel a barrel that, that would smell, uh, naturally smell. Mm. So perhaps one that had been used for rum or brandy or something like that. You would pack the bodies into that, maybe four, five, six. Because it didn't matter if you broke them. You know, they could bend into unnatural positions and you got them in there. Two or three adults maybe and a couple of children into it. The problem obviously was that there could be delays and um, they would begin to smell. But we didn't just export bodies, obviously. We exported <laughs> body snatchers as well in the, uh, in, yeah. in the case of, of Burke and Hare. And did the, did the cemeteries and the families in particular do much to prevent the graves being robbed? Yes. I mean, the first thing, obviously, was to build walls around them, Glasnevin being a typical example of that, very, very high walls around it, and watchtowers on it because they, they would have guards in them. Uh, these would come on late at night, well, you know, maybe about 8 o'clock at night or so. so sorry, Glasnevin is built when? The 1830s. They're still yeah. doing it in still the 1830s. Still doing it in the 1830s, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, they were doing it when, when Glasnevin opened first. But they, they built these watchtowers to stop people. They, they could see them. And you'd have guards, armed guards in the watchtower, watching out to see them. And they needed to be armed because these criminals were obviously quite determined to get the bodies out. They also, of course, would put dogs, Alsatians or whatever, around, you know, release them into the graveyard. And funnily enough, Glasnevin actually had one funny little thing. They had a mobile watchtower that could move to the newest grave. Because remember, we see Glasnevin as a huge graveyard now, but it it grew, it gradually Mm. extended so that you could move this watchtower to where the nearest, nearest burials were. And, um, and they also had cages, didn't they? They had uh, what were known as mort safes. Explain about those, um, you? Yeah, it, basically it's a cage, an inverted cage, which you put down over the body. There were many, many different designs of them. And it, it was simply went down, went down beyond the coffin and was fixed, if possible, into the grave in some way so that if you tried to dig down, you just hit this on the way. You, you could hire these and you only needed to hire it for three or four weeks until the body was of no value to the to the grave robber at all. Or you could have permanent ones, which could be fixed directly to the coffin itself, maybe bolted in through a, a piece on the bottom of the coffin or whatever. But they also had uh, some tricks, guns fixed to them, which would go off when you got down there, explosives. Uh, there's one famous case of a, a man putting in uh, gunpowder into an explosive unit on top of his coffin, so terrifying everybody that when the, the priest was sort of throwing in the, the, the sort of earth at the end of it, he, he just threw it and jumped back in case the thing went off. <laughs> and did anyone then in the anatomy schools, for example, mm. did they ever question where all these bodies uh, were coming from? Or was it a case of don't ask, don't tell? Don't ask. Don't ask where they're coming from. The surgeons knew very well where they were coming from because they were paying these people, and they were paying them well. They were paying them a stipend up front. They were paying them per body. They were paying them holiday pay. They would pay them if they, when they were in jail. They would support their families if these people were put in jail. They were paying all along the way for this, so they knew exactly what was happening. And realistically, if this didn't happen, there were no surgeons and there were no anatomy schools and no doctors coming out of it. So it, it was unfortunately a necessary trade until it was fixed. 
And if you were caught, and if you were caught with a shroud, I mean, obviously, as you say, yes. stealing a body was not a felony, but stealing yeah. a shroud was yes. a felony. Uh, what would happen? Because I know in the in the in the eighteenth century, you could <laughs> be executed for could. stealing very little. You could indeed. But who are you tried by? You're supposed to be tried by your peers, but you're not. You're tried by the free men of the city. Who were the free men of the city? The surgeons, etc. So you would get a light sentence. It could be a month or two months in jail. It could even be a year if you were, if somebody was you know, really determined to get you. But you were supported financially by the surgeon while you were in there. Uh, now, I suppose you could argue that it's a trade that hasn't ended because in, <laughs> yeah. in relatively recent years, the body of the great BBC correspondent in, in America, Alistair yeah. Cook, was, was actually kidnapped. Yes. But when, as a trade, when did this morbid uh, yeah. profession end? Well, the, the, the death knell, dare I say, uh, <laughs> was in 1832 when an act was passed which said that, number one, anatomists had to be licensed. Anatomy schools could be inspected. So you need a traceability, dare one say, on the bodies you had. But it also said that not just the hanged, but those who died in workhouses were unclaimed people. And, and that gave a lot of extra bodies. So in. a legitimate supply, And basically. what you've got to remember is that, unfortunately, you know, just a couple of years after that, you had the, uh, what, 1838, you had the cholera epidemic. And then, of course, the famine mm. came right after that. So there was no shortage of bodies, unfortunately. Now, I suppose one of the more famous cases in Ireland of grave robbing was that of the, the boxer Dan Donnelly. His arm <laughs> is, is even on display in yeah. the pub. But there are two other examples yeah. that interest you particularly. Two ah, people yeah. whose bodies weren't stolen by any criminal gang, yes. but in fact were stolen by their relatives or friends. Two extremely well-known yeah. people. Who were they? Well, Robert Emmett, of course, is the, is the most famous one. He was buried in Bully's Acre, the, the home of grave robbing. But he was buried there by, by Comenum Jail because the, nobody collected his body, no family members. There was no one to do so after he'd been executed. So the jail buried him in Bully's Acre. His relatives and friends felt really this was an insult to such a patriot and he had to be moved. So sometime later, they went in, they dug him up under cover of darkness and they took him away. And there ends the story because we really don't know where. where. No, mm. he's gone. And so his epitaph cannot be written. It can, it can be written, but we don't know where mm. to put it. Mm. Um, this is the problem. And until he accidentally turns up somewhere, we've no idea where he is. And then Anne Devlin. Ah, yeah. Well, Anne is my favourite person. But um, Anne had a hard life after Robert Emmett when, when he died. She worked, worked well and she earned some money. And when her husband died in 1846, she bought a grave in Glasnevin and she buried him in that. Now, she, by the time she herself died in 1851, she was broke. And when she died, she was found dead in her room and they buried her in a pauper's coffin. And she was buried in the same grave as, as her husband. One of her great friends was, was historian R.R. Madden, and he was away at the time. And when he came back, he was told she'd been buried in a pauper's coffin. He jumped to the conclusion, pauper's coffin, pauper's, pauper's grave. grave. Yeah. So about six months later, the middle of 1852, uh, himself, brother Luke Cullen, Thomas Campion, some other relatives, probably her husband's relatives and certainly relatives of Anne's herself, her brother John would have been there and some other friends. They arranged another funeral in Glasnevin for an Anne Devlin, purchased a grave 
and went off and on the appointed day turned up with nothing. Went over to the grave, took it up, took the body out and went over and buried it. Nobody saw them do it. Nobody saw anything wrong. So they filled in the other grave and that was it. Not bothering to look to see what was underneath Anne's coffin. And they buried her there. And there she lay, well, until today. She's still in that grave. She's one of only two people in Glasnevin who's buried in two graves. According to their records, she is in two graves. <laughs> well, my guest is Michal O'Divaline. Um I hope we haven't given our listeners too much cause for nightmares, but uh, as we have heard when it comes to horror stories, sometimes truth is much stranger and much scarier than fiction. Michal, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. 